If you'd like to look at Matthew chapter 22. Verse 41. This is the word of the Lord. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Thus says the Lord, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask that as we look to it now, that you would teach us. You promise that your word will teach, that it will reprove and rebuke. You promise that it will correct, and that you promise that it will train us in righteousness. And we come and bow before it today, asking you to do those things for us and within us by your power. And we thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. So, it's been common in Matthew as we've been going through. This is Sermon 135, by the way, if you're counting as we keep track. It's been common to see the Pharisees and other leaders confront Jesus and try and trip him up. Ask him a question that he can't answer. They hated him from the beginning. They distrusted him from the beginning. They resented him from the beginning. But they never had a way to discredit him. They never had a way to pull him away from the public. And they were looking for some way of doing that. If they can ask him a question he can't answer, if they can put him on the spot, then they can expose him to public shame and public ridicule and uh, in, in the language of our day, cancel him simply end his influence. Well, now he turns the tables and he asks them a question for once. He doesn't ask them very much question, very many questions. Now, I want you to understand that when he asks this question, he's not asking them at this point what they think of him. He, he's asking them what they, what they believe uh, traditionally, theologically, biblically about the, the person called the Christ. Now, the idea of the Christ is an unusual idea for us. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I want you to understand too that Jesus isn't answering so he can understand what it is they think. He already knows what they think. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 describing the word of God, Jesus himself says there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. This morning in at our, our church in Creighton, we have a microphone exactly like this one, and it gives me grief every Sunday. And you got to tap on it to get it active. I, I've got no idea what's going on. I've changed cables. I've replaced the mic. I've got no idea what's going on. 
and I beat on that thing like a bad dog. And I finally just pulled it out, turned it over, and grabbed the microphone from the piano and held it. And I was reminded when I got to this text of Hebrews 4.13, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account, that I'm kind of bothered by what I'll have to give an account for what I was thinking. Nobody knew what I was thinking, unless they knew me well. But it, it was an uncomfortable feeling. In John chapter 2, it says, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to those who said that they believed in him, for he knew all men, and because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he knows what's in these Pharisees. He knows what they think. He knows what they believe. Not in general. He knows what each one thinks. He knows the differences of opinion. He knows their arguments. He knows their history. He knows everything about them. So he asks them a question to highlight and underline and draw a box around their rebellion and their unbelief so that he can bring it out in the open. He knows it's there. They need to know it's there. And others need to know it's there as well. Who, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? <coughs> if you're familiar with Matthew... If you've been part of this teaching series for a while, that question will sound familiar. You're thinking of Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, that was north of Galilee, he was asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, oh, well, we've heard that some think you're John the Baptist. We've heard that some think you're Jeremiah or Elijah Others think you're, you're one of the prophets, maybe. And then he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the question Jesus asked the Pharisees is very similar to that question. And Peter has an answer ready. We saw in the text that they don't have an answer ready, and we'll get there in a moment. Now, the Christ, what does the Christ mean? It's, it's, a, it's a strange thing because we think of, of Christ as Jesus' last name. In fact, when I was a boy, he had an initial. Well, we won't go there. Christ, <laughs> Penny knows. I know you too well. <laughs> okay. Christ means anointed one in Greek. It simply means anointed one, uh, the noun. The verb means to anoint, and to anoint means to smear with ointment or oil. Going to a massage therapist and they use oil. It wasn't used for, for health purposes always. Messiah in Hebrew means Christ. It means anointed. So to say Jesus Christ means Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, in, in biblical terms, in the Old Testament, God anoints that which belongs to him, whether things or people. So he commands Moses, take the oil, and uh, after uh, he gave him the instruction, Moses carried it out at a later point, and God gave him the instructions for how to blend this, this unique oil. Take the oil and anoint the tabernacle. 
anoint the Ark of the Covenant, anoint the altar, anoint the laver, anoint everything within the tabernacle. He said, take the oil and anoint Aaron as high priest. Anoint the sons of Aaron as priests. Anoint Aaron's garments. Anoint all of that. And it's kind of a weird thing. I, I, can, I can kind of see Moses walking around with a pot of oil smear, and, and not very comfortable maybe and not very pleasant to see. What's going on there? Well, God is marking those things as his. It's a public declaration that those things belong to him. It's not that when Aaron was anointed by Moses, suddenly Aaron's status with God, God changed. God had already chosen him. He's anointed to make it clear to the people, he's mine. He had already claimed the tabernacle is his. It's anointed so that the people know it's been marked by God. In Isaiah chapter 42, God promises to send his servant. The chapter is a wonderful chapter. I encourage you to read it. Just the first verse says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased, I have put my spirit upon him. We have chosen one that's close to anointed one. In fact, it, the, the, from the point of semantics, they're the same. To be chosen is to be set apart. To be anointed is to be marked out as, as unique. And God says, I've put my spirit upon him. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And it, it, John argues with him a little bit. And they get through that. And Jesus goes down in the, in the water. And John baptizes him. It says, as he came up out of the water, the spirit of God came down upon him like a dove, anointing him. See, God doesn't anoint people with oil. God anoints people with his spirit. The oil used in anointing is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The act of anointing in the Old Testament with oil was a public declaration, a symbol, like a wedding ring, that God has made this his. He's declared this to be his. But the anointing that he does is always by his spirit. And then just so we don't miss it, I really appreciate that Matthew wrote this because, you know, we can be clueless. Verse 17 says, Behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved son, the one I've just marked, the one I've just anointed, the one I've just indicated as belonging to me. In him I'm well pleased. There's no time to talk about it today, but today... The giving of the Spirit Pentecost, today's Pentecost Sunday. The giving of the Spirit at Pentecost was God's way of publicly marking the apostles and all the believers as his. It was not about power. It was not about signs. It was not about gifts. It was not about charismatic flamboyance. It was God saying, these men and women belong to me. And publicly declaring them as his possession, marking them as his. We see in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until we receive our redemption. We're chosen, we are marked, we are anointed. Now, as Isaiah 42 speaks, as it describes Jesus, it describes that chosen servant as a righteous ruler, tender and kind, full of grace and truth, 
who would establish God's kingdom over the entire earth. He would be guided by God the Father. His blood would be the source of the new covenant. He would bring spiritual life and prosperity to those who are dead in sin and under the judgment of God. And God publicly anointed Jesus so that there was no mistake about him. This is the one. This is my chosen servant. And so with all that as a foundation of what the Pharisees should have understood about who the chosen one is and who the Christ is and what it means, Jesus asks, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? For once, the Pharisees don't need to go confer. They always need to confer. They gather aside, they talk and they debate, and they try and figure out a way to trip Jesus up, and then they try, and then that fails, and they go away. They don't need to talk amongst each other now. They just snap back with an answer. He's the son of David. That answer is is technically correct, but practically wrong. Jesus is the son of David. The Christ is the son of David, physically descended because of the promise God made to David, one of your descendants will sit on a throne for all eternity. That is true. But that's not the significance of the Christ. See, David had several sons. By the first century, he would have had thousands of male descendants. Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, was a son of David. Saying the Christ is a son of David is is maybe patriotic and spiritual, but it's really generic. It's the closest thing to a non-answer as you could probably get. So Jesus rejects their answer by by asking a follow-up question. (coughs) My cough wouldn't stay home today. I had to bring it. Sorry. He rejects their answer by asking a follow-up question. Then how does David in the spirit call the Christ Lord? Saying, David said, or Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. In the Greek text, we simply have the Lord said to my Lord, Lord being kurios, it's the only Greek word for Lord. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the name of God, but because of a, a mistaken sense of, of, in my belief, superstitious respect, the, the Jews stopped using that and substituted usually Adonai, Lord. But in the, in the Hebrew text, it says Yahweh says, Jehovah says to my Lord, and the second Lord is Adonai. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So this is Jesus' reasoning. If the Messiah, if the Christ, is merely David's son, his physical descendant, he could never be David's Lord. He could never be David's monarch. He could never be David's king. Now, kings back in that time were like kings today. They had dynasties. Queen Elizabeth II died last year. When she died, her son, Charles, became king. He became Charles III. He was just uh, coronated. Thank you. Was there ever a time when Elizabeth called Charles my king? No, he wasn't king. She was monarch. She would never have said to him, you are my monarch. She was the monarch. 
It wasn't until she died that he became king, and she was dead. She couldn't call him my king. David would not have called his physical descendant my lord. He would have called him my son. If all we can say about the Christ is that the Christ is the son of David, physically descended from him, then Psalm 110 would say, Yahweh says to my son, not to my Lord. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, God in human flesh. So how do they respond? They have no answer. They're just silent. No one was able to answer him a word. <coughs> it also says no one dared from that day to ask him another question. Now, let's understand context. Many people ask Jesus questions after this. He's not saying nobody ever again asked Jesus a question. It's nobody ever again challenged him in this way. Why are they unable to respond? It doesn't say they weren't willing. It says they weren't able. They were powerless to respond. Well, why was Peter able to answer in Matthew 16? Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Why was Peter able to answer the question that the Pharisees couldn't answer? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, verse 17, he says, Blessed are you, Simon, Bar-Jonah, that means son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't learn this from the other disciples. You didn't learn it from the rabbis. You didn't learn it from the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes or the Zealots or any of the other groups that are going around. You didn't figure it out on your own. Your mom and dad didn't teach you this. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. Peter's answer is that Jesus is not just the son of David. He's not just a man. But that he's the son of the living God. He's God himself in, in human flesh. That means Jesus is Yahweh God. God is triune. He's one God but three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit or the Father. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. That's as far as my explanations go. You can't explain the Trinity. But we don't have to understand the mechanics of a thing to know that it works. So again, why was nobody able on that Tuesday morning during Passion Week? Remember, it's Tuesday. The next day, Wednesday, Jesus is, is going to uh, give what's called the Olivet Discourse about the end of time. Thursday, he's going to gather with his disciples for the Lord's table, or for the Last Supper, rather, celebrate Passover, initiate the Lord's table, deliver what we call the Upper Room Discourse in John. Then he's going to go to the garden late at night, early the next morning, and pray for a significant amount of time then he's going to be arrested all of those events of his crucifixion and 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 suffering are just days away this is the end of his ministry why were they not able to answer the question 
It's not a failure of their theology. It's a failure of their faith. They're in rebellion against God. They remain dead in their sins. The Father has not revealed the answer to them. The Holy Spirit has left them in their natural state of spiritual darkness. After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and the Spirit came at Pentecost, the apostles began preaching Christ and him crucified throughout Jerusalem. And the church grew rapidly. And there's a point in Acts chapter 6 where it says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So I'm speculating here, but I think it's safe. If a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith and trusted in Christ, I have to think that a great many of the Pharisees did. And the Sadducees and the, and the Essenes and the others. But not today. Not this day we're looking at. Why not? <clears throat> because these men would become the primary agents of Jesus' crucifixion. They would become the primary agents of Jesus' substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross at the hands of the Romans. It's what scripture said. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, these are such important verses. We, we need to keep them in mind. The apostles had been warned and threatened by the Jews not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, and they said, we have to obey God rather than man. And then they, then they went away and they gave thanks that they were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake, and they prayed this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, <coughs> to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. These men couldn't believe. God had predetermined a destiny for them. Jesus' death came about by his design and his intention, and he brought it about through the means of his will. Their unbelief was part of that predetermined purpose. So as we, we bring this home, who do you say the Son of God is? Who do you say Jesus is? Can you answer the question? My, my deep hope, it's why I teach. It's why I'm here every Sunday is that you would know him personally as Lord and Savior, that you would be set free, that you would be able to answer the question, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11 says, in the aftermath of Jesus humbling himself, therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There, there will come a time in the future when every knee will have bowed and every tongue will have confessed. I bow my knee to the Lord Jesus today. I got to tell you, it's a, it's, a, it's a stiff, creaky knee. It doesn't like to bow. 
but it bows. And I confess that Jesus is Lord, God in human flesh, to the glory of God the Father. And I, conf- can, I, I, I confess that with junk in my throat and trying to cough and clearing my throat. I confess it poorly, in other words. And I bow poorly. I'm not saved because I bow in the right way. I'm not saved because I confess it in the right way. I, I, I'm able to bow as I do and confess as I do because he has granted me that understanding by his spirit. The day is going to come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every human being, every demonic creature will do that. For us, those who wait until that day will have waited too long. And they will bow against their will and they will confess against their will. If you don't know him, praise God, stay the course and remain faithful. If you do know him, I mean, let's reverse that. If you do know him, praise God, confess it, stay the course, remain faithful. If you don't know him, humble yourself before him and turn to Jesus. Trust in him to save you. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing we can do to keep ourselves in him. If our salvation was dependent on us, we'd be gone. He keeps us. He keeps us. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your kindness to us. The precious gift of your son. We thank you for the life that you have given us in him. Would you help us now as we sing to recognize that we do bow and that we do confess. But we do so from sinful eyes we do so from imperfection we continue to rest upon your grace and upon your kindness and even as this song declares the night is dark but i am not forsaken for by my side the savior he will stay i labor on in my weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen.